0: He said, the second I got a call that you were looking for me, I knew that he was trying to tell me that he had a daughter and that he wanted me to find you. you.
1: Welcome to Adoption Now, sharing real stories of the joys and challenges of adoption. Now here's the host of Adoption Now, April Fallon. Welcome to Adoption Now, telling your adoption story. I'm your host, April Fallon. Thank you for joining us. A few weeks ago, I had a great privilege of going to Bill McCartney's honorary dinner. Bill led the CU Bluffs into victory and also started Promise Keepers. During his dinner, several inspiring people got up to speak, but one person really struck me, and that was Les Miles. Les Miles is the retired coach of the LSU Tigers. And he talked about being a trench warrior. And I loved that so much because oftentimes we talk about being in the trenches in adoption. Oftentimes we say yes to things, and in the middle of it, we get in over our heads and our life feels like it's turned upside down. And we don't really know who to talk to and you just feel like you are in the trenches. I mean, there's no other way to say it better than that. We also talk about being a warrior and fighting for your children. And being prepared to go into the battle for bringing this child home, oftentimes you're fighting so many different obstacles. I mean, so many different scenarios. And if you listen to my podcast, you've heard so many stories where people have continued to fight that fight and brought their child home and what they've had to do to do that. And so I just want to say, if you are in the middle of your journey, keep going, Trench Warrior. You can do this. I know it's not easy, but it is worth it. So I just wanted to encourage you today. What is so great about today is we have a very inspirational guest. I'm loving this show because I'm able to be surrounded by so many inspiring people. Michelle Madrid Branch is an author, speaker, and global advocate for women. She's the executive producer and host of The Greater Than Project. She was nominated for her work while on air with ABC TV. And she has written three books, Tummy Mommy, Adoption Means Love, Triumph of the Heart, and mascara moments embracing the woman in the mirror. Michelle is an adoptee who was adopted from the UK, and she has adopted children herself. Michelle, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, April. I'm so happy to be here with you. That was a big intro, huh? That's
0: that's a big intro. I, I love so much of what you said about being a trench warrior, though. Thank you so much for inspiring me with that experience, and thank you so much for the lovely intro. I appreciate it.
1: Well, you have done so much in your life. And oftentimes I like to connect to people first before I read their intros because I want to talk to them and see what they're like as a person and then find out what they've done and accomplished later. And so in this case, I am so very impressed with you, not only because of all the things that you've done, but because talking to you one-on-one, you can tell that you've done your work. You can tell that you have overcome so much and yet you have so much love in your heart. Mm
0: -hmm. Thank you for saying that. Yeah, you know, I tell people often is that adoption is a never-ending journey, and that has proven true in my own experience as an adoptee. You know there's just so much that we learn over the course of a lifetime, and certainly I have through through the years of, of living in the experience of being an adoptee, and then so much I've learned from adopting two children, two children internationally, a son from Russia and a daughter from Ethiopia. There are challenges, no doubt, in this adoption journey that we seek to explore and, you know, share and communicate about. There are also many blessings. And I think one of the things in my lifetime, where I am today um, as an adoptee and as an adoptive parent, is that I want to talk about the challenges, but I also want to honor the blessings because I have seen the the delicate balance of, of doing both. And so I'm really honored to be here with you today, April. Thank you.
1: I'm excited to hear your story. Okay, so let's go all the way back to the UK.
0: Sure. Wow. Well, you know, um, I was born in the United Kingdom. My mother, my birth mother is English. Birth father was Spanish. I put it as, like this because it's, it states this in my foster records. I was the product of their affair. My mother was married with three children of her own. And she uh, became involved with my father, who was a single man, Spaniard, living in the UK. And my mother became pregnant with me. And it was a bit of a scandal where they lived. And my mother and her husband did a lot of struggling to sort of decide what to do with this unborn child. I'm very honest when I say that my mother thought to have on three different occasions on abortion, and she could not go through with that. She ended up bringing me into the world. I'm ever grateful for that. And the decision was made to place me into foster care, which is where I was until I was adopted. My birth mother did keep me for a short time after my birth, so we had at least a little bit of that connection time, um, that mother-newborn-infant time. And then that was, of course, relinquished. And I was in the care of a, of a loving foster mother who, you know, I was only in one home, but eventually adopted. And I will say that I had very early on in my life as a foster child, of being a, a kid, a baby, a child who was looked at as difficult to place. That was a label that was placed on me um, within the system. And because of my circumstances of being, as they put it, an illegitimate child, and also because I looked like my father, my Spanish father. I was very dark in coloring and, you know, brown eyes and dark hair, and I had olive-toned skin. And I think that um, there was worry that they might not be able to find a family for a child, as they put it, like me. And I'm so blessed that I was adopted by an American family who at the time was living in in the UK, had been living in Taiwan. My mother and father had two boys. They really wanted to adopt a little girl and I became their daughter. And so the journey for me as a foster kid, I'm not, I I don't have a story of being, you know, shuffled around from home to home or or in the system for years and years and years. Um, it served as um, a moment in time to safeguard me and safe keep me until a family could be found. And, you know, by the time I was a toddler, I was adopted, um, continued to live in Europe. And then um, we came to the state. I think South Dakota was the first place that we, we landed in America. And the journey from that point on after being adopted was one of, Absolute sweetness and then some real challenge for me, just being a kid who didn't look like anyone in our family, being a kid who somehow on a cellular level felt that label of difficult place and odd looking child and the things that were tagged upon my
1: being while in foster care.
0: I struggled with that a lot, April, growing up of just feeling so different and in some ways so out of place.
1: So when you say toddler, how old were you? Two? Yeah, two. Mm -hmm. Okay. Do they talk to you at all about your foster mom? No, no. I had a letter um, that my foster
0: mother wrote to the family, any family who would end up being my forever home. And certainly this woman prayed, um, her name was Mrs. Hipkins. And Mrs. Hipkins prayed that I would find a family um, that would love me and, and call me their own. And I was given that letter later in life. And it's a treasure for me because in the letter she talks about what I liked as a baby, how I liked to sit outside in my pram and the sun, and that I didn't like my baths, and on and on and on. And so she sort of filled in some holes for me during that time in my life where I'm so blessed to have that. Not a lot of kids get that when they are removed or they're in that place being displaced. I'm very grateful for it. Was given it later in life. And so now I, I didn't have a conversation, open conversation about, My foster mother growing up, no.
1: Okay, so when did you start feeling like you were different? Was it always or maybe teenager? Mm, Five years of age. Really? Five years old. I remember having
0: just a distinct awareness that I looked different. I can remember people saying to me, well, you don't look like anyone in your family. Where did you come from? Even when I was, you know, the littlest. And I can remember being in kindergarten and first grade, those two years were eye-opening for me because I heard so much from adults and kids alike who would say, I heard you're adopted or you don't look like you're abused or they would say, we're going to play house and -and so-and-so is going to be my real baby, but you're going to be my adopted baby. I'm not going to love you as much. And I just got a lot of signs at that age that, whoa something must be wrong with this girl who is adopted and people seem to know and people seem to be vocal and that there's, there's something that's not right about it. And, and I really wanted to understand what that was. At, at the youngest of age, I can remember April thinking to myself, well, what is it that makes me so different? And why is it that I feel so for some reason, ashamed when they say these things to me. You know, why do I feel this sense of shame? I don't even know why I'm feeling this. And the only way I could describe it at at that age is I just felt sad and kind of embarrassed.
1: Mm -hmm. Do you feel that your mom was able to handle that and teach you what to say? Did she know that that was going on? Yes, she did. Because there were times when I would come home
0: in tears from school. It was a very difficult thing. And my mom talked to me, in beautiful ways, my mom told me, you know, that I was I was chosen. That my parents and my family loved me, and, and they waited for me, and they prayed for me, and that I was chosen. Um, that I was loved, and that adoption, you know, is love. That it is an expression of just opening your arms out wide and loving. And I agree with that, and mm-hmm. I live that to this very day. But what was hard is. I didn't feel, I I, I knew, and and I could experience the fact that I was loved by this family, but I also knew that there was a family somewhere out there in the world that had chosen to let me go. Mm -hmm. So to be chosen was bittersweet for me. Mm -hmm. I understood and how beautiful it is that my mom prayed for me and that she chose me, but on the other side of it, there was a woman who chose to relinquish me, Mm -hmm. and that really
1: hurt, and I didn't get to express that pain. It's true. You can have the most wonderful mother and that mother cannot change what the outside world is saying. And so mm-hmm. that's really hard. We we find that in our own family, you know, in our home, everything's totally normal, but I cannot control what other kids are going to say to my kids. I cannot control mm-hmm. how other people perceive my family. And that is really hard as a mom and really hard as the kid. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So you're saying that you started to realize you were different at five, but at seven is when you came to the United States, correct? Yes. Mm-hmm. Did it get better here? It didn't. I feel like it, it got harder because
0: I want to say this in a way that is it's not judgmental at all, but we lived in a lot of different places. My parents moved around a lot. And so I, I think I was always trying to feel like i fit in and new schools and new communities I also, many of the places we lived growing up were in the, you know, sort of the deep South and I didn't look like my parents and people didn't know if I was Hispanic or African-American or, and so I got a lot of hurtful comments growing up just on my, my ethnicity. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know a lot of times as a kid, how to, how to address that because part of me didn't know my whole story. And I just, began to sink into beliefs that did not serve me early on in my life of just punishing myself for looking the way I looked for somehow, you know, in, in my mind innately being bad because not only was I relinquished by my parents, but in some way I just felt um, lesser than when, when I hit, you know, the age in the United States where I was going to school, I was in class, I was seeking peers um, I just did not feel like I fit in anywhere. And and I'm I'm saying this, I'm being very honest with you. This is not everyone's experience, but it is mine. Mm-hmm. Um, we just moved around a lot and my adoptive father, I think part of it too, with my sense of seeking um, connection and relationship. I, I had such a tight relationship with my mother, but my father, my adoptive father had a drinking problem and so There was a lot going on in my Mm -hmm. house that wasn't healthy. And so we didn't have the space at the time to have healthy, whole conversations, dialogue about my adoption. Mm -hmm. And my dad could say things, you know, within the walls of his own sickness that probably alienated me even further from myself.
1: You know what I find interesting about your story is that you didn't rebel. You actually became more perfect is what you said. You started to get better grades. You um, never talked back. You were really good in school. Is that right? Yeah, because in my mind,
0: imperfect things got sent back. And my dad once told me, you know, I got you as a gift for your mother and how you turn out will be solely up to her. He didn't mean it at the time. He was not well, and he was battling with his own demons and Mm -hmm. his alcoholism. But that to me, immediately my brain started working overtime. Well, Well, if a gift isn't perfect, it gets sent back. If something isn't perfect, it gets sent back. If someone isn't perfect, they risk being sent back too. So my job and the job I assigned myself as a kid was to try to be as perfect as I possibly could because then I would be safe from being sent back and it was a lot of pressure to put on my you know my young shoulders but it was the way that i tried to keep control of my life um at the time and i didn't know it that i was doing that you know I, you don't really know you're just doing it because you're sort of in survival mode or at least i was at the time and so having the best grades being the best dancer the best cheerleader the best daughter not talking back not voicing my feelings because I I didn't want to upset anyone, I became, you know, definitely a people pleaser within my, my household growing up. That was the way that I um, thought that I would remain safe if I just was perfect and then kind of disappeared,
1: if it, that makes sense. It me. does. And this is going to help a lot of people because oftentimes when we're seeing if our child is healthy or doing well, we look for signs like running away and being rebellious and not doing your homework. We don't look for the signs that you're talking about, right? That yeah. Somebody coming into a situation wouldn't say, Oh, it, it seems like she's really struggling. No, you're doing great. And sometimes when your child is acting so perfect and doesn't tell you how they feel, that's a red flag as well. And so really looking at that and getting your child the help that they need so that they can tell you negative feelings is really important because if you're afraid you're going to get sent back or you're not going to be able to stay, you would be quiet. And then how do you find your voice? Yeah, it takes a long time. It takes a long time. And what we want to do
0: is help our kids find their voices as early as possible mm-hmm. and stand in that truth and claim their own identities. You know, as an adoptee, we're given identity and in, in, in many respects. Sometimes our names are changed depending on where we're born, sometimes our culture, our nationality will change. There's so much about identity that can be lost. And I think allowing a child and, and, and saying, you have permission to fall apart in front of me. You have permission to say, I heard. I don't feel okay. Or maybe I don't feel so lucky right now to be adopted. That's okay. Mm-hmm. We all struggle with things on this planet. No one ever said that adoptees need to be perfect. No one ever said they need to be anything but who they are. Mm -hmm. And so when you think about the transition and the displacement and the moves that happen within the life of an adoptee, be they from foster care, domestic adoption, international adoption, there is a disruption there. And it's okay to say that doesn't necessarily have to feel okay. Mm -hmm. But you know what? You are loved and we are going to stand with you and walk with you through this. And on the other end, You've got to be whole, even though you may not feel it right now. And it's so important. And I probably get a little breathy when I'm talking about this, but it is so important. Had I been told that as a child, had I been allowed that, maybe I would be talking um, a very different story with you now. You know, my life is totally blessed, and I am so grateful for everything. I really do see my life as a blessing. Mm -hmm. I see that every step of the way, looking back, how life happened for me and not to me. It's so important that I say that, but I also know there was a lot of pain along the way. And to let a child know whether they're newborn, you know, are nearly grown that it's okay to not be okay. Sometimes it's
1: a huge gift for them. It's so good. Now I'm crying. Probably my producer's crying. You're so inspiring. Okay. So, Tell me about your journey meeting your birth mother. Oh, wow.
0: I, at the time, um, was in my teens, and I wrote a letter. I was so seeking identity, April. I really did not understand that I held the power within me to release me and free me from the pain I was experiencing. I really thought that people outside of me um, had the power to, to make things okay, to heal and answer all of my questions. And so I was seeking out reunion with my birth mother and I wrote a letter to her husband. I had lost contact. I didn't know, you know, an area in, in England, if she still lived there, where she was. So the only thing I could do was reach out to her husband, who used to be in the Royal Air Force. I wrote one letter to the RAF. And I think the opening line was like, whoever opens this, please stop and read the rest of the letter. Don't throw this away because I need an angel right about now. And whoever opened it did indeed read that line and continued reading. I asked that they would help me find my birth mother's husband. And they did. They forwarded. They found him. They forwarded the letter. I will never know who that angel was, but I'm so grateful to them today. Thank you. I have to say that out loud. I forwarded a letter to my mother's husband, and just a very short couple of three weeks later, I got a a letter back, and it said, My name is Jim, and if you are who you really are, I want you to know that your mother has been aching ever since the day that she let you go, and I want to tell her that this is you, that this is her daughter. But before I go to her, I would like further proof. Do you have your birth certificate? And I did. And I got the copy to him. And then he, you know, um, spoke with my mother. And then we spoke. And it was very emotional. I was in England, on the ground in England, um, within, you know, weeks. How old
1: were you? And I was in, a teenager. I was 15, 15-ish, between 15 and 16. Okay, um, this is the part of the story... That's just shocking to me. You're 15 years old and your mother let you get on a plane? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: It was scary for her, but she let me get on the plane because I think she knew it was important for me. And when you talk about how scary it is for our children, you know, we have a culture within our home and a language that we speak about adoption. And then they leave our home and we don't know the language that is being used, you know, when they're at school or, you know, uh, on the playground or what have you. I think for my mother, the same fear was that she was letting me go to this woman and she didn't, you know, she had no, there was no assurance of how I would be necessarily received. And I didn't know how I would be received really. I mean, it's one thing to, to talk on the phone or, or to correspond via letter or what have you, but to be on the ground face to face is a whole other
1: experience. You must have been a pretty mature 15-year-old.
0: I think I was, you know, I don't know. Was I mature? Maybe I was. I think I was just so hungry to know. I was so hungry to find me, April. I, I think I was starving to find me. And I didn't even know how to express that. But there was something inside of me saying, you have to go. You need to go. And so I, I went, not really, truly being able to verbalize what that meant at the time. I, I remember getting off the plane and, and walking through Heathrow and seeing all these people waiting at the arrival terminal. And and I was looking for my mom, and I got a sense of panic, like, well, what if she didn't show? What if she changed her mind? What if she's not here? You know, And there was just that I was scared that, you know, would she leave me here?
1: This is a good place to break because we want to know, was she there? Stay tuned as we talk more to Michelle on Adoption Now. We'll be right back. Hi, this is April Fallon, the host of Adoption Now, telling your adoption story. Our website is done. We would love for you to visit us at adoption-now.com. You can always find us on Facebook and Instagram, Don't forget to subscribe to Adoption Now podcast on iTunes. And remember, listen, like, and review. Now back to the show. Welcome back to Adoption Now. I'm your host, April Fallon. Today we're talking to Michelle Madrid-Branch. She is very inspirational. I mean, you're just walking in your calling, being an author, speaker, you're a global advocate for women. And you do so much speaking to inspire women to find themselves. Because in your story, here we are, you're 15 years old and you're trying to find yourself at 15. You're trying to get those answers that have been missing and you jump on a plane to go to the UK to try to find your birth mother. And so we took a break. You were waiting in this airport to find her. Did she show up? Yes, she did. Uh, She showed up and she was standing
0: there, April, um, in this light sort of lilac colored dress. I remember I'll never forget it. And I looked at her and I, I walked toward her and there was a moment where I just felt such anger. It was, it was, it came up and I didn't even know where it came from. I just, I felt so angry. Like I wanted to know right in that moment, why did you, why did you turn away? And, you know, I had all of these questions that I had prepared in the mind that I wanted answered, you know, and I got very close to her. We stood you know, there face-to-face, practically nose-to-nose, gazing into each other's eyes. Hers are so steely blue and mine are so dark, you know, chocolate brown like my birth father's. But I melted in that moment and the anger just went away because I was looking at myself.
1: Mm-hmm. See, my
0: mum my and I are very different in coloring. She's, you know, peachy skin tone and blue eyes and, then, you know, I'm, dark in tone and, and, and we're so different in our, our coloring, but our mannerisms were so alike and the way we carried ourselves and our body shapes. And it was like looking at me and I, I just melted in the moment. That's the best way for me to describe it. I just melted in the moment and she said, hello. And I said, hello. And we both started to cry and we, you know, began to embrace and hug each other. And, um, we took about an hour and a half ride to her home, which is north of London. And it, it was a reunion that was so powerful in so many ways. And I remember it really like it was yesterday. I remember moments when she, you know, my mother would want to draw my bath or comb my hair, or, you know, as if she weren't making up for a lost time. And we had sweet moments on trains where we would talk or go have tea together in the afternoon, we would take walks together, I would ask her questions. A lot of times she would just tear up and say, I don't remember. And I think that she, whether she did remember aspects of that time in her life or not, maybe she had blocked them out from her own trauma. What I began to see was a woman who was a real woman, who was a broken woman. She wasn't Mm. the queen in the castle that I had fantasized about as a little girl or what have you. She was a real woman who had gone through something very challenging, very real, very hard, and she had made a decision. And the decision impacted my life. But I began to get inklings of that, you know, it really wasn't about me. You know, as a teenager everything's about you. But Mm -hmm. in in those moments I started to see or I started to be the whisperings of these suggestions of maybe it's not about you, Michelle. Maybe all of this wasn't because of you. And I, there was a, a day close to the end of my, my first visit with my mom where we were outside. It was a sunny day and warm, and my mom loved the sun. And we were sitting in her garden, and there was a neighbor who came across the street. And she looked at my mother, and she looked at me, and she said, well, who do we have here? And sort of pointed at me, gestured at me. And my mom had this sort of panicked look in her face, and there was this moment of pause that seemed like it lasted forever. And my mom looked at me and she looked at her neighbor and she said, This is a relative from the United States. This is Michelle. And I really held my I held my, you know, composure and I said hello. And I and I shook the woman's hand. She said a few more things and then she turned around and walked away. And I looked at my mom and I said, Why didn't you Why didn't you tell her that I'm your daughter? And she said, because I didn't think she really needed to know. And I fell apart inside. I felt sort of abandoned all over again. I felt rejected. I felt shame. I felt dirty. I felt ugly. All of those things that I was hoping my time with my mom would heal, Mm -hmm. you know, heal and take away and wash away came rushing back in. And I left England feeling pretty broken and wondering if I would ever, you know, would I ever be claimed by my mom in that way that I was seeking and knowing that there might be a chance that that might not happen for me, that she might not be able to do that. And then what? And then what? Wow. How do I find myself? Mm -hmm. How do I heal? If the person that I had given the power to do that wasn't able to.
1: So did she fill you in with her story? I mean, was she still married to the man that she was married to when she placed you? Yes. And they are still married today. <laughs> um, you
0: know, I've had wonderful talks with Jim. He and I are close and, uh, I'll never forget, uh, during that first, that first visit, we went, Jim and I just, we went to get to dinner together and he told me probably more than my mother has ever told me about my, my father. And, uh, he said, you know, the moment I took you out of your mother's arms is the moment I lost my soul and I haven't had it since. I just began to see this picture of brokenness and how adoption doesn't just impact the child. Mm-hmm. And the child, yes, is always the central focus. But there are so many others who are impacted, and they are real people. And, and ultimately, through the journey and over the years, as I've learned the power of forgiveness, I've learned to see my parents and everyone involved as innocent, because really, they're all innocent. They did what they felt they had to do at the time. And my was whether I could come to a place to forgive them so that I could free you, And that's what I really needed to do, and it's what ultimately I did.
1: And where was your birth father? Uh, You know, my birth
0: father passed away in 2008. I never had that moment of reconciliation with him face to face. You know, adoptees can sense their parents. I always say this. We can sense our birth parents within us. And I woke up one morning and I said to my husband, Jeff, I said, I think my birth father's sick and I need to find him. And I went on this journey of finding Julian, which is my birth father's name. And I found him, but he had had recently passed away. And I uh, I was, you know, on the ground when I found out that he had passed away. I was re- literally on my knees. Like, I, you know, once again, I needed to find this person, um, I thought. And in discovering that my father had passed away, I also discovered that I had a brother, Andre, and I never knew I had a brother. Andre never knew he had a sister. And we connected after my first father's death and we met in Spain And one of the things that Andre said to me was, you know, he said about a month before dad died, he looked at me and he said, I have a daughter out there somewhere. And I didn't know what he was talking about. I thought he was just sort of talking out of his mind because he was in some pain at the end of his life. And he said, the second I got a call that you were looking for me, I knew that he was trying to tell me that he had a daughter. And that he wanted me to find you. Wow. And so the fact that we found each other was so poignant. And what it did for me, and I'm, I'm speeding up several years in this journey, but when I heard those words, I have a daughter out there somewhere. It was so healing for me because it, this is from the man who told social workers he didn't even want to know when I was born. And so for him to say to his son, I have a daughter out there somewhere, meant that indeed he wanted to know when I was born. Indeed he knew that he had a daughter, and indeed, he had carried me in his thoughts and in his heart for all these years, and that he had lived a life of secrecy and silence and how painful that must have been for him.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so I forgave him, too. Do you look like your brother? I don't. Really? <laughs> I don't look a thing like my brother. Um, he is shorter and probably looks like his mom, who was from uh, Cordoba, Spain, and I think maybe we do and maybe our smiles, our sense of humor, we're both kind of silly and geeky. but I look like my dad. I look so much like my dad and then yes, I do look like my mother too, but I'm definitely a combination of both and I don't look like really any of my, my half siblings at all. On the English side or the Spanish side, I don't really look like them, resemble them, but I definitely carry both of my parents um, within me for sure.
1: What I'm hearing in your story is that you did find some healing by finding your birth family and there was some pain. And I think oftentimes we like to put everything in neat boxes. We either say that was terrible or that was amazing, but you are able to say that was both. There are both things going on. There were some really great things about meeting them. And then there's some really painful things. I like what you say. No one holds the answers, but you. How did you come to that conclusion after you found everybody?
0: You know, I just had lived a life of feeling so disempowered and not giving myself, you know, not looking at this, this person in the mirror and saying, look what you've been through. Look what you've learned. Look how you've grown. Look how hard that was and still look how you thrive." And the answers are inside. The answers are within. You know, I believe we come into this world with such knowledge. And over time, the hurts and the disappointments and the dings, we forget our own power. And so for me, getting back to that power was what was so freeing. And and it really did have to do with letting go. Letting go. You know, it it seems so hard to do. Well, how could I let go of my anger? This person did this to me. Well, you need to let it go because it's only imprisoning you. And we're all waiting. I I tell adoptees all the time, we are all waiting for you to emerge because the you that is you, the you that was created before all of this stuff happened, is a you that has so much to give to this world. Don't let these things keep you silent. Don't let these things make you hide. Mm -hmm. You know, use them. And I hope I'm answering the question, but use them. Use the power that you have within you. Use the answers that are already there. Allow yourself to feel the things that don't feel so good so that you can move through them and get to your truth. And I think that's what I did. In some ways, maybe I was hard-headed and and naive at times, but I went, I was going to find the truth, right? I was going to track in it and track down the truth. And as hard as it was, it moves me closer to the knowledge that, you know what, everything I need is within me. Everything that I need is within me now. I just have to let go and mm-hmm. let in the brilliance that's already there. And every one of us has that. Every single one of us.
1: I just can't believe I am so privileged to interview so many people that have been on an adoption journey, whether an adoptee, a birth parent. They have adopted and they are able to take the things in their lives and flip them around and the pain into a platform, so to speak, and overcome and use really difficult times to propel them forward to do something great for somebody else. And I see that in really good adoption stories. The stories we like to tell are the ones that are not clean. They're not perfect. There are these glimmering hopes through the whole journey, right? There's these really difficult times where we grieve with the person and then there's these times where they overcome. And your story is like that. We interviewed Eric Weinmeier, who was the first blind man to climb Mount Everest. And he talked about losing his brother and losing his sight and all these things that he's gone through. And then he turned that around and he brought this little boy home from Nepal. And in your story, You did that. You found your husband and you had a biological son, but then you decided to adopt. Mm -hmm. I did. Adoption seemed very natural for me. And I, I'm
0: so blessed to have two children via international adoption. And I pause for a minute because I get choked up when I think about it, April. My first international adoption was in Russia. And my husband and I had um, our our son, Christian, and we wanted to grow our family. And we thought, hey, it'd be so amazing if God could direct us to a little boy somewhere in the world. And we did a lot of prayer about it, and we were directed to Russia. And over, you know, two journeys to Russia, meeting my, my little boy at the time he was, when I first met him, he was nine months old. We brought him home at 11 months old it was an amazing experience. This little boy who had been in an orphanage in Southern Ethiopia since um, he was you know, days old and bringing him home and working to heal the trauma that he had felt in the orphanage, you know, in, in the orphanage where he was, they, they didn't hold the babies a lot. They didn't pick them up. They didn't necessarily look into their eyes. And so the first year or so, was hard because my little boy was really scared of being touched he didn't know what that was and, and to look look me in the eyes and you know through just love and prayer and time you know he is 13 years old now and he is light of the world he's handsome and brilliant and he loves to act and to sing and he is a, an absolute love bug he wants to hug all the time and he's funny and I'll never forget when I brought him home from the orphanage. There was sort of a glaze in in his eyes, and he, he looked like he was a little baby who just almost given up on hope, you know. And I'll never forget the moment when the little delight the came back into his eyes. He was crying and almost having a terror. You know, he was so afraid, and he had such an emotional outburst one day. And he was on the floor. He was about to. And I sort of sat over him and I, I gently held his arms and I, I leaned, I put a little bit of pressure on his legs and I looked at him and he didn't want to look and he kept moving his head and I kept saying, I love you. I'm never going to leave you. I love you. I'm never going to leave you. I love you. And at one point he looked at me and our eyes locked and he took in this deep breath and he "Ah," let, let it out. And he started to cry. And I started to cry for 30 minutes. I held that little boy and we stopped. And then he looked up at me and this had come back in his eyes, almost as, he, almost as if he just said, okay, mm-hmm. I, I get it. And I'm going to let you. I'm going to let you in. And it was, it was a very powerful moment. And he, he, we are so tight. We are so close. I, I couldn't love that little guy more. <laughs> I just couldn't. He's amazing. And then my daughter... Um, We adopted her from Ethiopia at 10 months of age, and her story, I will tell you, is like almost full circle for me, and such a God thing and a divine message is coming down and pouring all over me. I held my daughter in Addis Ababa for the first time, and I asked the orphan. She had been given a name. This little baby girl had been abandoned on the streets of southern Ethiopia and found by a police officer. And brought to a local SOS um, satellite office. She was then transferred to Addis to the um, the SOS orphanage there. And she had been given a name by the police officer. He named her Tiblet. And I asked the orphanage director, what does the translation mean? And she showed me in the file in my daughter's paperwork. And it said, Tiblet translation, let her be greater. Mm. And I started to cry right there in, in Addis, in that orphanage and I held her, and I realized, and I'm going to tell you, this is just a turning point for me, and it was 2010. I was looking at a little girl who was sick, who was malnourished, who had giardia and explosive diarrhea, who was coughing, and, and so, 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 so tiny, and I saw in her all the potential, all the greatness, all the beauty, all the talent, all the wisdom of the world, and her name was given to her by a stranger, and, and it just, it was like a prayer, let her be greater, let her be more, and I knew that it was, she was my little, she was a little messenger for me, and that this was a, a divine message from above of allowing myself to be greater than the circumstances that surrounded me, than the things that had happened to me, that my, my job was to rise up, and you mentioned that earlier, that you talked to so many people with so, incredible, with so many incredible stories. And the thing that maybe weaves us together or threads our stories together is there was a moment when we had to decide mm-hmm. who we were going to crumble, who we were going to rise, right? And rising up is, for me, the only choice to be greater than all of the stuff, right? And I held this little daughter, this little daughter of promise, immense promise in my arms. And I, I dedicated the rest of my life Is standing up for people who feel like they've never been heard or don't have a voice who feel so damaged by abandonment and rejection because it's real. It's real, and there's trauma there. But there's also triumph. And like you said, every story has hard things, but it also has brilliant things too. And we can almost, as hard as things can be, we can look at those things, and if we can say, I've learned from that and so thank you for it, And I'm going to use it to help others. I'm going to use it in service. I'm going to use it to live more greatly. I'm going to use it to be greater. That's really the stuff of life. That's really what we're here for, whether you're adopted or not,
1: right? So good. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm so honored. How can people get a hold of you and get a hold of your books? Thank you. Um,
0: Please find me on social media. I'm at michellemadridbranch.com. On Twitter, at Let Her Be Greater. On Facebook, Michelle Madrid Branch. On Instagram, Michelle Madrid Branch. You can find my books on Amazon. Um, You can also find them on my website, michellemadridbranch.com. And coming up in November, we, April, are going to be opening up a dynamic adoption Facebook community. And I hope people will look for that. If they follow me on social media, they can find out more about that. And also some dynamic e-courses I'm going to be offering in the areas of adoption and healing, what I like to call abandonment, recovery, and identity reconciliation is what I'm all about.
1: That is so great. Thank you again, Michelle. And send me a picture because everybody's going to want to see your family. You got it. Don't forget to like Adoption Now on Facebook. And remember, all of our podcasts are available on iTunes. Thanks for tuning in to Adoption Now. I'm your host, April Fallon. See you next week.